Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi, and welcome to our new episode of Be Good, brought to you by the BVN Unit, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavior change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science or business management in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder of the BVN Unit, and with me is my colleague, John Burkhardt. Hi, Eric. It's great to be joining you, and it's my pleasure to introduce our guest today. Dr. Robert H. Frank is a Henrietta Johnson Lewis Professor of Management and Professor of Economics at Cornell's Johnson Graduate School of Management. His Economic View column has been appearing in the New York Times since 2005. His papers have appeared in the American Economic Review, Econometrica, the Journal of Political Economy, and other leading professional and peer-reviewed journals. His books have been translated into 24 languages, and these books include Choosing the Right Pond, Passions Within Reason, Microeconomics and Behavior, Principles of Economics with Ben Bernanke, Luxury Fever, The Economic Naturalist, Success and Luck, The Darwin Economy, The Winner-Take-All Society, and more recently, Under the Influence. So we are delighted and honored to have the opportunity today for an in-depth conversation with you. Welcome, Robert. Thank you very much, and it's a pleasure to be with you both. Thanks, John. So uh, let's start. Uh, Robert, we would love if you could start off by sharing with us a little bit of history on your personal journey and what got you interested first in economics and later in behavioral science. I think your academic background is in mathematics, in statistics, before your PhD in economics at Berkeley, and you have started by teaching math and science for two years uh, as a Peace Corps volunteer in rural Nepal. That's right. Yes, I, I had been a mathematics major in college, and right out of college, I went to Nepal for two years. I was a math and science teacher in a village school there, and I, I had not planned to, to be a teacher professionally, but uh, when I had been a senior in college, I was asked to teach a freshman math course. They must have been very shorthanded. That's not something they would normally allow an undergraduate to do, but uh, I, I, I did do it and, and I really loved doing it. And uh, I decided at that moment that I wanted to become a teacher, but I didn't know what I wanted to be a teacher of. I thought I didn't want to get a PhD in math. I didn't feel like I had much in common with the people who were headed on that track. Uh, so just to buy time and to, to think about it and do something useful, I decided to spend those two years in the Peace Corps. And while I was there, uh, it was a quite common th experience for Peace Corps volunteers to get interested in development economics. We were almost all of us in poor countries, and that seemed like an important problem to think and work work on. So I applied to economics programs and, and uh, from, from there went on to Berkeley to study statistics and economics. And and re really, the 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 main influence I think on my thinking uh, in economics was as a result of that experience living in Nepal. I think uh, I I was 
just astonished after a day or two. Conditions were very, very different there from what I was used to in the U.S. and, and what, what you grew up with in France. Uh, it was the poorest country in the world at that time. It, it still is one of the poorest. But what was astonishing to me was that in a very short spell of time, 48 hours, baby, everything seemed completely normal. And I think uh, it, it was as a result of that experience that I, I first really understood at a, at a deep level how important context is for how we feel about everything. Uh, the the drama of life there wasn't in, in any significant way different from the drama of life here. You get up in the morning, you have goals you're trying to achieve. If you if you make progress, you feel good. If you don't make progress, you feel disappointed. Uh, and and so the the kinds of material surroundings that we need in order to live our lives. Of course, there are important differences in healthcare systems and other things that matter, but how big your house, whether you have a car, whether you need a car, all those things depend on context. And that's been really, I think, the the animating insight that's guided much of my work in the decades since then. Mm -hmm. uh, thanks a lot. Um, you mentioned Richard Taylor in your book at the very beginning of your uh, career and some conversation uh, you had with, uh, with him, I think. Could you tell us more about any mentors that had a strong influence uh, on you, maybe some others? Yeah, well, Richard Thaler had come to Cornell while I was away during my first sabbatic leave. I was in Washington, D.C. for two years on leave. I came back. He had been there for a year. I met him shortly after I got back. And he and I spent long hours talking with one another. He was uh, just working on his 1980. 80 paper, uh, it, it completed it, it was uh, due to be published soon, the, a behavioral uh, theory of consumer choice. Uh, and we were sharing observations about the, the, the myriad ways that people in everyday life don't seem to behave according to the predictions of standard economic models. And a couple of years after that, I taught uh, what I think was the very first undergraduate course in behavioral economics. Uh, there wasn't even a field called that then. It was just uh, the name was just beginning to surface. Uh, and I decided to call the, the course Departures from Rational Choice. I, I kind of regret that title now. It seemed to in encourage a lot of fruitless debates about what it means to be rational. But but that was the title I used, and I organized the material under two headings. I, I called the first Departures from Rational Choice with Regret, uh, and under that heading came the kind of material that Richard Thaler had been working on. He had spent a year on sabbatic himself with Kahneman and Tversky. Uh, and was very much interested in the fact that we make systematic cognitive errors. Uh, we don't process information very efficiently. We use rules of thumbs that work well enough much of the time, but but can be easily manipulated to lead us astray. So departures from rational choice with regret, those are the errors we make. We, we didn't serve our interests as well as we might have. Uh, once we know why we made a mistake, we seem motivated to correct the mistake. So that's one set of material. The, the, the second part of my reading list I called 
departures from rational choice without regret. And, and those were things that we do that don't fit the predictions of the narrow rational choice model, but which we have absolutely no regret about doing. So in the first category, uh, if you're influenced by sunk costs, well, we know you shouldn't be. And once you learn why you shouldn't be and you see that you have been influenced by them, you seem motivated to change your behavior. If, if an economist were to tell you that a selfish person wouldn't leave a tip at a restaurant far from home that he didn't expect to visit again, uh, because after all, it's too late for the waiter to withdraw the good service that he's already given. Uh, the, the, the person who hears that statement from the economist would think, oh, would not think, oh, I, I'm going to change my behavior from now on. Thanks for pointing that out. He would think, uh, what kind of a person would behave that way? The waiter provided good service. It was the expectation at least in many countries, that you get a tip after you do that, and you'd feel like you hadn't lived up to your end of the bargain if you didn't leave a tip. So those are departures from at least the predictions of the narrow self-interest model that we don't seem to regret. I buy a, a better interview suit if I'm an MBA looking for an investment banking job because all the others are wearing expensive suits. If I don't wear one, I will somehow not look the part uh, uh, that the recruiters are looking for. And uh, the fact that when we all spend 10 times as much on interview suits, the same people get the same jobs as we would have if nobody had spent so much, uh, that's not an occasion for me to regret spending so much. If I hadn't spent so much, I wouldn't have had a chance at the job. So those are really collective action problems. Uh, and, and they're a very different sort of problem from the problems under the first heading. So, so it's been my view that I don't think that's happened yet. Uh, so I'm, I'm still plugging away, trying to persuade people that these are where the real losses lie. The other problems are very important. Uh, the, the nudge units that have focused on cognitive errors have saved populations lots of money uh, uh, by preventing the kind of mistakes that, that, that have been identified there. But, but these are much, much bigger losses. Mm -hmm. We will come back later on this because I think it is at the heart of your uh, book. So, uh, thanks. Could you share also an experiment uh, uh, or an insight that had a significant impact on your thinking? Maybe a research that you have conducted of, or some others have uh, conducted? You know, most of the time, uh, I'm, I'm not inclined to change my mind when I read a paper. Uh, if the if the paper confirms what I already believe, well, okay, so uh, that's not a surprise. If it if it strongly contradicts something that I believe, uh, then I assume there's probably an error in the paper. Uh, <laughs> so I'm 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 not a, a very open-minded scientist in that way. Uh, I, I think uh, that approach to thinking about things has steered me. Uh, astray in at least a couple of instances, but for the most part, I think it's it's been right. Uh, when I think, oh, that when I think to myself, when I see a result, oh, that can't be right. Uh, it it usually turns out that it wasn't right. The the experiment uh, most recently that colleagues and I tried to do uh, in philosophy, there's there's a big uh, overblown dispute between two schools of thought in moral philosophy, the consequentialists, 
they think the right thing to do is the thing that leads to the best consequences overall. It's it's very hard, hard to see how anyone could argue with that being uh, a bad thing to do. Uh, the deontologists, uh, uh, they argue that the, the thing you must do uh, is to be faithful to basic moral rules and principles, even when they do not produce good consequences. Uh, mm -hmm. Mostly these two schools of thought produce identical recommendations about what to do. So there's, as a practical matter, they don't diverge very much. But but as, as a, a, an interesting empirical observation, there seems to be very hostile feelings on the, uh, on the part of the deontologists toward the consequentialists. They really don't like the consequentialists. And so I was always curious why that would be, uh, since the two schools do, as I say, point in the same direction. And I had a hypothesis. It was that when you're... Uh, considering a moral question, uh, most of the time it's a question of the form, can I do this thing I want to do? Uh, when you run that question through your moral filter, uh, the, the consequentialist asks, well, will the, the, the benefits from me doing it outweigh whatever costs result of my doing it? And, and that's where I think the problem might lie. If, if I'm the one who wants to do the thing, and I'm the one who has to estimate what the benefits of doing it would be and what the costs of doing it would be. Since I have an interest in doing this thing and since there is always ambiguity in the es estimates of costs and benefits, I will tend to recruit estimates of the benefit that are favorable to the outcome that, yes, I'm allowed to do it and estimates of the costs that are also favorable to my position. And so I will tilt the analysis in my favor and therefore do many things that I shouldn't do if I'm a consequentialist. That was my hypothesis. And we did some experiments. We, we induced a consequentialist frame of mind in people. And we tried to see whether they would behave in a more self-interested way. And we could not uh, find any evidence that that worked. Outstanding. Yeah. So I love that we have before us here a an economist and behavioral scientist who pursued experiments and examinations of moral philosophy. It's just a, a wonderful convergence of topics in just a unexpected manner. So, so towards that point, uh, as we've mentioned previously, you have written around 15 books on a wide variety of subjects, uh, price, wage discrimination, roles of emotion, public utility pricing, measurement of unemployment spell lengths, distributional consequences of direct foreign investment. Really, you, you've run the gamut in a formidable way. For the past several years, it seems that your research has focused on rivalry and cooperation in economic and social behavior. So then my question is then, what's your main motivation when you decide to pursue a topic and publish a book? Oh, I've, I've been extremely lucky in that... Uh... When I stumble upon an observation that doesn't make sense to me, uh, I, like most people, I guess, try, try to think more about it, what's going on here. And I usually write something brief about it. Uh, you noted that I've been doing a, a New York Times col column for a long time. Uh, I'll often explore something that's bothering me, uh, a question I'm having trouble resolving in the context of a short piece like that. 
And, you know, we, we like uh, the world to respond to what we do. I think that seems to be a deep-seated desire in people. At least it was in my kids. I remember when they were babies. I have four sons, all adults now, but when they were uh, oh, well short of one year old, I, I can recall walking them up to a light switch and flicking the light on and on, and they would watch me do that. And then with utter delight, reach for the light switch and flick it on and off and, and just uh, take uh, sheer delight in the fact that they could make something happen that way. So, so when people react to something you've written with interest, uh, that's uh, often a spur to think further about it. And so I've I've been free in the context of the job I held for many years. I retired from Cornell this summer. Uh, I've been free just to sit down and 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 launch an investigation that that takes me wherever it will. And it, it's often hard to get started on these things. I think one of the the most neglected uh, features of human nature by behavioralists is the tendency. Uh, of inertia, you, you know, when my kids were little, it was very difficult each evening to get them into the bath. Uh, you you couldn't get them to drop whatever it was they were doing and get into the bath. Once they were in the bath, though, no, they 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 would not want to leave the bath uh, for any any uh, thing other than a dire threat. So to want to keep doing what you're doing, that's a, a an incredibly powerful drive, and I think. Uh, the fact that once you get started on a project, in my case, on, on a book, then it's just so easy to keep going on it. Uh, and so some of the most uh, joyful hours, this this uh, this feeling of flow that's described as the most pleasurable psychological state is just a, it's a great thing. It's a wave to ride for for months on end. It's a it's a, a, a an experience that I just feel incredibly fortunate to have been able to savor not once, not twice, but multiple times over the course of a career. That is quite a gift. I, I think we, we should all aspire to have such a satisfaction and and wonderful uh diversity of experience in the, in the work that we take on. And this is quite an inspiration to us. We, we definitely want to talk about this book that you have written very recently. But before we jump into that, we're going to look back at some of the works you, you've put out in the past. And are there any key insights from previous publications you've made that you'd like to share with our listeners? Are there What have you learned that you'd consider really important for people to know? Yeah, that, that's a that's a great question. I th I think uh, I've always uh, thought about things from the standpoint of uh, a Darwinian evolutionary framework. Uh, how a couple of simple principles of evolutionary biology could organize so many things that you would see in the natural world, uh, and and it was always a challenge to me to to think about how unselfish motivations could survive under competition in the in the natural world we we say in economics people donate to 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 charities because they get a warm glow from doing that uh, that's descriptively accurate uh, people do seem to feel good when they donate to charity but the the simple Darwinian model says that you raise more offspring when you have more resources at your disposal. That was always true, at least in early human history, maybe not so much now. 
And so why would getting a warm glow from giving away material resources uh, serve your evolutionary interests if it, if it resulted in your being able to raise fewer offspring, not more? Uh, and so that was always uh, an interesting puzzle to me. It was clear that people did get a warm glow from doing that. But why, why would evolution favor people who got a warm glow from that? And so I, I think for me, it all began to make sense when, when it dawned on me that there are really two competing uh, sets of forces in evolution. Uh, one is that we are rivals with one another. Uh, if, if there's limited resources available, uh, who, who gets uh, the limited stocks of them? If there's a famine, is it the poor who get fed? No, it's the people who have more who get fed. And it's not that if we want to predict who gets fed, we, we would not look to someone's absolute resource holdings. We would look to their relative resource holdings. It's not whether you're smarter than they are uh, uh, in any absolute sense. It, it's whether you're smarter than the people you're competing against. It's whether you have more money than the people that you're bidding against for the resources that really matter. So that's that's the, the, the strain, that's the set of forces that predict that people will not get a warm glow from giving money away to charitable causes. But economics brings in uh, another important insight, which is that uh, in virtually every endeavor, there are very profound uh, and, and widespread economies of scale. What you can achieve acting by yourself is often a minuscule fraction of what you can achieve in cooperation with others when you specialize and, and, and each get good at a small part of a task. Adam Smith was famously uh, on target when he talked about the pin factory, how, how these people working together could make 12,000 pins a day. If they each had to make pins all by themselves, they could make maybe only a dozen. Uh, so economies of scale are directly in competition with the selfish interest to get more than the other person. If, you're, if you want to succeed in the world, you've got to be a member of a high-functioning team. And high-functioning teams, everybody wants to be a member of one. They don't have to let just anyone join their ranks. They're very selective. Why would they want somebody who would put his own interests ahead of the team's interests when it was possible to get away with that when no one was looking? There would be huge pressures to select for people who would be uh, able to put their own interests aside in favor of the team's interests. And so uh, the, the, you said rivalry and cooperation. Those are the two, two main threads. Uh, it's, it's the, the ability to put your own interests aside uh, and become a high-functioning team member uh, that enables you to gain access to the resources that you need. But it's also uh, inescapable that there is an element of rivalry in seeing who will get to be named to those teams as well. Uh, they don't just name uh, school dropouts to be team members. They, they look for people who really know what they're doing. And so... It's a competition to achieve the rank you need, to get the credentials you need, to get onto the good team. But it's also uh, a character question. Uh, can we identify people who are honest, who will put their own interests aside when the team's interested? And they're actually pretty good at that. Wow. 
Fantastic. That, that, I mean, great answer. And it leads us brilliantly into what we wanted to ask next, which is around the role of behavioral economics itself. Um, you've been part of the behavioral economics revolution. And this is always interesting to me because everybody defines behavioral economics a little bit differently. What do you think behavioral economics has added to classical and neoclassical economics? And would you define yourself as a behavioral economist? You know, in the early days, I'm talking about 1980 to 85, when the field was just actually beginning to emerge as a field. Uh, yes, I thought of myself as a behavioral economist. I, I I said, well, there are two main branches of the field. There's there are the cognitive errors branch, and then there are the 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 other uh, behaviors that don't fit well within the framework of the traditional models, which I think often are a consequence of people caring about goals that aren't assumed in the standard models. So the 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 part of my course that I call Departures from Rational Choice Without Regret uh, includes those. Uh, I don't regret bidding for a house in a better school district uh, because that's a really important goal to get my kids into the best possible school. But it's true that when we all bid as intensively as we're able for houses in the better school districts, which, by the way, are always in the more expensive neighborhoods in France, uh, it's the same school budget in every school everywhere in the country. They're on the same page of the national curriculum every day of the school year. And yet families are not in doubt about which schools they want their children to go to. They want their children to go to the schools located in the more prosperous neighborhoods because the pace of learning is always higher in those schools. So uh, we know that as parents, if we all bid for houses in the better school districts, Half of all kids are still going to go to bottom half schools, the same as before. But that doesn't mean we made an error to bid for houses in the better school districts any more than we made an error if we stood up to see at a crowded event when others were standing in front of us. We all stand to get a better view. Nobody sees any better than if everybody had remained comfortably seated. Those are collective action problems. They, they arise because we're chasing something that the the standard model didn't contemplate. The standard model says how how we feel about our house depends only on its absolute features. How many rooms does it have? How many bathrooms? How many uh, uh, rooms with a view does it have? All those things uh, are, are what count in absolute terms. No, uh, how you feel about your house depends on how your house compares to other houses in the same local environment. In Nepal, I lived in a two-room house with no electricity, no running water. Uh, never during the two years I lived there did it seem in any way like an unsatisfactory house. It was a, a wonderful house in that context. If I lived in that house here, uh, my kids would have been ashamed for their friends to see where we lived. I would have been ashamed. Uh, not because they're bad people or I'm a bad person. That's just the way life is. Context shapes our evaluation of everything, and traditional models almost totally ignore the role of context. It, is it is it uh, cold out? Uh, it's a sixteen degree day. Uh, it, is it cold out? Well, if you if it's a March day in in Oslo, uh, 
that that's a wonderfully warm day. People will think you're crazy if you ask. It's a cold, cold day. Everybody's out there in, in shirt sleeves. Uh, if you grew up in Miami, where I did, and it's a 16 degree day in March uh, or November, is it cold? Yes, we knew the answer too, but it was a different answer. Context matters. Uh, Robert, it's time now to talk about uh, the new book I mentioned in the uh, intro, Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. Can you first tell us a bit about your specific motivation for writing this book? Uh, how countries came to regulate smoking. I was very surprised, by the way, when I saw that France had banned smoking in restaurants. Uh, I, I, I did not imagine that would ever happen. But uh, we, we uh, began banning smoking in restaurants and other public places in the United States uh, only after reports came from Japan that exposure to secondhand smoke caused health problems. You were more likely to get certain illnesses if you were exposed to secondhand smoke. Up until then, we didn't regulate smoking. Uh, smoking had, had long been shown to cause harm to you, the smoker, but it was only when there were studies showing that smoking caused harm to others who had no uh, obvious way of avoiding the harm that the state felt empowered to try to regulate smoking. We imposed heavy taxes on cigarettes. We said you couldn't smoke in public places and so on. That's a natural response to the, the reluctance to be told what to do by the government. Uh, the, that's a stronger impulse in this country than it is in France. But uh, you see this in every country to, to some degree or other. But to, to my eye, The real harm that you do if you become a smoker is that you make other people more likely to smoke. I began smoking when I was 14 in 1959. Uh, my friends had been smoking, most of them for a couple of years already. My parents smoked. It was quite normal to become a smoker under those circumstances. None of my adult sons is a smoker, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be able to say that. And the only reason I can say that is that they grew up at a time when most of their friends were not smokers. So the real harm you do, I thought, if you become a smoker, is to make other people more likely to smoke. Uh, it's a huge effect. If, if you're worried that your daughter will smoke, uh, if her friends become uh, more likely to smoke themselves, let's say the fraction of her friends who smoke goes up from 20 to 30%. Uh, it's a minority, but it's a bigger minority. She becomes 25% more likely to smoke if that happens. There's no other effect nearly as big as that. And that will mean uh, much greater likelihood of serious illness throughout her life. Well, people say, well, that's still not a, a, a legitimate reason for the state to intervene because uh, it's this, it's the It's our responsibility as individuals not to copy the behavior of peers when it's bad behavior. It's not the state's responsibility to tell us that. Well, what about the parents? Uh, we invest enormous energy trying to persuade our children not to smoke. Uh, what's certain statistically is that if more of their friends smoke, many of us are going to see those efforts go up in vain. Uh, we're are, we're going to be bitterly disappointed that our children become smokers, that they die uh, prematurely, that they suffer illnesses they didn't need to suffer. So those parents are harmed. How much would they pay to avoid the harm of seeing their, their goals thwarted in that way? 
So the, the, the thesis of the book is that what we do profoundly influences other people, not just with respect to smoking, but in virtually every domain, sometimes for the better. When we put solar panels on our rooftops, that makes our neighbors more likely to do it. Uh, when we exercise uh, and others see us do it, doing that, they're more likely to be motivated to do it too. So sometimes for the better, often though, for the worse, we have an interest in the influences that shape our behavior. We, we should care about them. And if we thought about it, we would. If there were simple steps we could take that would encourage people to behave in ways that foster more supportive social environments, why wouldn't we want to take those steps or at least consider taking those steps? Taxing cigarettes is an example of a step like that. Taxing carbon emissions is another example of a step like that. We have to tax something. If we tax behaviors that cause harm to other people, that means we can reduce taxes on everything else. Behaviors that actually create benefits for other people, we could subsidize those with the revenue we collect from the taxes on behaviors that harm other people. Uh, and it, it explores that theme in a whole host of domains. Obesity is contagious. Uh, bullying is contagious. Sexual predation is contagious. There are tax compliance is contagious. Uh, you cannot find an example of a behavior that others can observe that is not contagious. Sometimes the, the effects of contagion are neutral. Uh, we don't we don't have any concern about those. Sometimes the effects of contagion are beneficial. We we ought to want to encourage those effects. Other times they're positively harmful, and why not try to discourage those? That's the theme of the book. It's a it's it's a, a completely simple set of ideas. It's an old old thesis in psychology. They, the psychologists have always said it's the situation not the person. You want to know what somebody's going to do? Don't ask what kind of person is she? Ask what are the social circumstances that surround her when she decides what to do? Thanks. I would like to come to some of your uh, key concepts. And the first one, I think you started to talk about it. It is the concept of behavioral contagion. Could you explain more this concept and uh, why it can generate positive or negative, as you just mentioned, consequences for the population well-being. You know, we're very uh, strongly inclined to do what we see other people do. Uh, I, I, I think that's not mysterious when you think about it. I mean, we urge our kids not to copy the dumb things that their friends do. So I think when we talk about this, it's usually in the context of negative influences like smoking and, and uh, taking risks that are that are foolish. Uh, so so negative impacts of peer influence, I, I think, are very salient in our imaginations. But if you think for a moment about how complicated the world is and about how little any one of us knows about the details we would need to know to, to navigate our way through it successfully, uh, the idea that we wouldn't take cues from the examples of others is just patently absurd. Of course, we're going to watch what others do and be be inclined to do what they're doing if they seem confident about it. If if you saw people running away from something and looking afraid, 
should you just sit there and do nothing or should you uh, become alarmed yourself and, and, and at least become poised to run away yourself? Uh, maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's a, a fight that doesn't involve you, but they could be being chased by uh, an animal that, that would uh, be happy to eat you if you didn't run away. So, so yeah, the idea that we're influenced just instinctually by by what other people do is not mysterious. Uh, uh, the The fact that other people do harmful things means that we'll, at least in some of those cases, be influenced to do harmful things too. So, so yeah, the smoking example is one I carry throughout the book because I think it's such a simple, uncontroversial one, uh, and and most people, I think. Smokers themselves, it's very rare to meet a smoker who will not say on reflection, I wish I had never started. If if you ask people, are you sorry that we taxed cigarettes and that now only 13% of adults in the U.S. smoke when over half of men were smokers when I, I was growing up? Are, are you sorry that we've taken that step? Nobody who thinks about that would say, yeah, that was a big mistake. Let's go back to the old days. Of course, it's a much better outcome now that we've taken those steps. So uh, the, that example just illustrates that there's a lot of low-hanging fruit out there left to pick. Uh, we have not systematically asked the question, how do we influence one another? How might we encourage the positive influences and discourage the negative influences? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think there is something which is uh, really important that you uh, highlight in your book, taking the example of the legalization of marijuana or uh, sex ma same-sex marriage uh, or the Me Too movement, you say that changes can happen very rapidly. Could you uh, elaborate a little about this idea? Yeah, I think... Uh... We, we have to have opinions about many things. If you ask somebody today, is slavery okay? Uh, you could go to any country on the earth and ask that question, and the student would answer, answer confidently, no, slavery is, a, is a, an impermissible, impermissible human institution. Uh, it should be outlawed. If you would then ask why, uh, most students could not repeat the same detailed uh, arguments that govern the actual debate about whether slavery should be outlawed that, that took place over past centuries. Uh, most of us are against slavery just because everybody else is against slavery. We don't have to waste any in energy and, and, and time worrying about the details of why that's so. Uh, We don't we don't argue about why you stop when the light is red. Uh, you know, it's a, just a custom. Uh, you, you do that. And and so uh, the, the fact that we can achieve uh, good results by simply believing what others believe means that the belief systems are inherently chaotic. Uh, so if you if you say. Uh, is same-sex marriage okay? Well, we, that survey was was put to people in the 1980s in the United States. Uh, 10% of the people thought, yeah, it's, it's okay. Uh, it was almost unthinkable in the minds of 90% of the others. Why was it unthinkable? Because other people thought it was unthinkable. Uh, but when opinion began to change on that, when more and more uh, homosexuals uh, declared publicly that they were not 
heterosexual, when more and more people realize that, oh, my cousin is homosexual and he's a nice person, uh, they change their mind about that. And when some change their mind, that meant, you know, that the, the, the fraction of people who believe X versus not X is different from what it was before. That makes it easier for the next person to change his or her mind. And so you can get cascades where it goes from everybody believes it's wrong to everybody believes it's right uh, in a very short period of time. And that's essentially what's happened regarding same-sex marriage in the United States. Every state in the union, it was a majority against allowing it. Uh, as recently as 10 years ago, now it's a, a two-thirds majority in every state saying, what's the problem? Mm. Whom does it hurt? Um, thanks. Very uh, interesting, I think. Uh, behavioral contagion is mainly totally ignored by the public policy decision makers. You mentioned that you call the mother Uh, it is uh, what you call the mother of all cognitive illusion uh, as a starting point to understand this. Could you explain this concept? Yeah, we'll have to take a step back. Uh, the, 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 the question is, why don't we tax the wealthy more heavily and use the revenue to invest more heavily in the public sector? The evidence about the determinants of human happiness, uh, there, there's a large literature on that, which you're both familiar with, uh, but the it's a very contentious literature, but the most solid conclusion in it uh, is that beyond a certain point, and it's one that we've long since passed in the U.S. and France and most other wealthy countries, increases in most forms of private consumption don't do anything more than raise the bar that defines what we feel we need, what we what we consider adequate. So if all the wealthy people lived in a mansion twice the size of the mansions today, none of them would be happier or healthier. In fact, they would probably be less happy because the bigger properties are more trouble to take care of. If the only reason you need one is that others have one, and if you don't have one yourself, you can't entertain the style expected of you in your community, then we would all be better off if we spent less on that and more on vaccine research, more on hospital surge capacity, to name two investments that would be very high payoff in the current environment, better roads, better, more 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 TGV connections across the country, uh, more uh, green energy, and less on the things that don't matter. Why don't we do that? And there we get to your question, why don't we do that? It's because people suffer, the wealthy and particularly suffer from the mother of all cognitive illusions, I call it. They don't want their taxes to go up because they're afraid. What are they afraid of? Not that they won't be able to buy what they need. Nobody's got a tax proposal that threatens that. Uh, they're afraid they won't be able to, to buy the things that make life seem special, all those special luxuries that there are never enough of to go around. Well, how do you get those? Uh, the way you get them is to outbid other people like you who also want them. And your ability to do that depends only on your, your relative bidding power. So if your taxes go up and then the taxes of other people like you go up too, then your relative bidding power is completely unaffected and the same penthouse apartments with 
sweeping views of the city go to exactly the same people as before. Why don't people know that? Well, they can't really use the standard cognitive tool for thinking about how higher taxes would affect them, which would be, oh, I'll try to remember the last time my taxes went up. How did I feel about that? Well, if you're wealthy living in in the post-World War II era, your taxes have not gone up. They've gone steadily downward across the Western world with only a handful of trivial exceptions. So you go to cognitive plan B, which is to, to say to yourself, well, if my taxes go up, I'll have less money. So how do I feel when I've had less money? You can remember times like that in your history, unless you've led an extremely charmed life. You had a bad business year, you had a divorce, you had a health problem, you had maybe your son was arrested for a crime, you had to hire an expensive lawyer. Uh, those times you had less money and those times were all very painful, negative memories. You can recall them instantly. You don't want to experience them again. That's what you think is going to happen if they raise your taxes because you'll have less money. But what's not true about those cases was that in each instance you had less money, but everyone else had the same amount of money as before. So your relative bidding power was lower. You really were less able to buy the special extras that you wanted in those cases. But that's a cognitive illusion when you apply that uh, lesson to the, the question of what will happen if my taxes go up. So who's happier, the, the wealthy driver in a high-tax country who drives his Porsche 911 Turbo on well-maintained rows, or the wealthy driver in a low-tax country who has much more money to spend and drives his Ferrari F12 Berlinetta, which costs twice as much as the Porsche, on roads with foot-deep potholes everywhere in them? Uh, it's an easy question. You know, the the Ferrari driver is going to be much less happy if every, everyone else uh, had the same amount of everything else in the world. Uh, that would be an easy question. But but in fact, uh, you know, it, it's a it's a, a, a very easy call. If we taxed ourselves more heavily, those of us who have high incomes and spend it in the public sphere on things that would benefit all of us in palpable ways, then we would all be happier rich and poor life. You mentioned that uh, one key solution is to create what you call supportive environment and also to ask questions. The, the last chapter in my book uh, is an attempt to explore what scholars have learned about how we get past this stubborn problem of polarization. We have people in different camps uh, One camp believes X, the other camp believes not X, and they can't talk to one another. And uh, it was a very illuminating body of research for me to investigate. Uh, it's a difficult problem, uh, number one. First, uh, uh, don't um, imagine that there's an easy answer to that question, but there are ways we can make progress. And the, the one finding that stood out to me more than any other was that if you try to explain to It's going to all the time when we're talking about conversations between people in opposing camps. People become defensive. So uh, psychotherapists know this. People who, who counsel battered women say that if they try to point out to a battered woman how the abusive 
relationship is harmful to her interests. Typically, a woman will get defensive and become even more determined to stay with the abusive partner. What they report is that if instead they ask a woman to describe her relationship and then listen attentively and ask questions along the way, the, the battered woman will conclude quickly of her own volition. What am I doing here? I need to get out of this relationship as quickly as possible. So it's the same with other conversations with people who are uh, holding views that, that uh, are, are difficult to change. If you ask somebody a question that makes them think about their position, not from a point uh, of being threatened, but from just a, a neutral vantage point, uh, you can get them to think afresh about the issue. The, the most vivid example from my own experience of this was in conversations I had with opponents of Obamacare, our Affordable Care Act. Unlike France, we have not had universal health coverage. There's been an attempt to expand toward that. Uh, Obamacare was the first step. Uh, it had three features. Everybody had to buy insurance. That was the mandate. Uh, uh, there were subsidies for insurance if you couldn't afford it. Uh, you can't make people buy something they can't afford. Uh, and so the, the, the idea of the Obamacare was very unpopular, but not all, all, all features. The third feature, everyone liked. The insurance companies had to cover you even if you had a, a serious illness to start with. But they hated the mandate. They wanted to appear, ob uh, repeal Obamacare because they hated the mandate. Uh, if you tried to explain to them the statistical rationale for the mandate, that went nowhere. Finally, by accident, I asked an Obamacare opponent this question. What do you think would happen to home insurance companies, people who sell fire insurance, if the government mandated that they sell fire insurance at affordable rates to people after their houses had already burned down. And people were happy to think about that question. It's not a threatening question. You don't have to think about that question very long before concluding. Almost uh, even the dullest person will quickly conclude, oh, if you required that, the insurance companies would go bankrupt because nobody would buy insurance until his house burned down. Why would you buy insurance if you didn't need to in order to get coverage? If you could wait and buy it only if you needed it after your house burned down. It wouldn't work. Home insurance works in the marketplace because nobody knows whether his house is going to burn down. Mm -hmm. In the health market, you know whether your house is going to burn down. You know you have diabetes. You know you have cancer. Uh, and the insurance company knows it too. They can't sell you insurance at affordable rates unless there's something that has everybody who's not sick in the pool too. So once once people see that, they say, "Oh, well, maybe we maybe we actually need this mandate." So asking the right question uh, is incredibly powerful as a as a conversational tool with people who are trying to make progress with difficult ideas. Thanks, Robert. We would love to have uh, your perspective regarding the two biggest problem we think with John. Um, the world is uh, facing. So, John? Well, so polarization, you, you've sort of, uh, you've been rather prescient in terms of uh, where we wanted to, to direct this conversation a bit. Polarization is a major topic um, in many dimensions in the world today. And we're 
curious around your perspectives on a few of these very particular dimensions. First, very timely, you know, affecting everybody in the world right now is the COVID crisis. Um, this is of particular relevance to us here at the BVA Nudge Unit as we've been working with the French government around changing people's minds and their behaviors in response to, uh, to the virus. What would be your advice to help governments successfully encourage citizens to adopt safe behaviors and specifically to seek vaccination? Are there any ways we could concretely use behavioral contagion to accelerate vaccination efforts? I think uh, it, it, it's been explicitly recognized here that seeing well-known people getting vaccinated has an impact on the willingness of others to become vaccinated. So don't just have people on your team sit in front of the camera and get vaccinated. Have people on the other team get vaccinated in front of the camera too, put it on TV. So those examples matter enormously. I think on the negative side, the fact that Trump and Trump's followers have been reluctant to wear masks in public has been uh, primarily uh, a factor in our high incidence of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths in this country from COVID-19. Uh, the negative influence of seeing bad examples is palpable in our system. Uh, for for vaccinations, I think uh, the 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 main behavioral lesson uh, uh, that Richard Thaler keeps emphasizing when he's talking about policy rollout is make it easy. If it's easy to do it, people will be much more likely to do it. If more people do it, others will see more people do it and become more likely to do it on that account, you get a snowball effect. Uh, so I think if, if, if we see a behavior that it would be good for everyone to adopt and not enough people are adopting it, then we take steps to encourage that behavior. It's, not, it's no mystery how to do that. We can, number one, make the behavior more easily accessible. Uh, we could subsidize it, pay people to do it. Uh, there are all sorts of ways that are tried and true to get people to do things that they aren't doing in sufficient quantity in the first place. So dovetailing off of that, you started touching on this. Um, there is another major issue of polarization facing the world and particularly the states. Uh, as we're speaking today, we're just under two weeks before the U.S. Pres presidential inauguration. So we can't really let you go without asking you about political polarization. Um, independent of the results of the election, it is fairly clear that political discourse and possibly genuine worldviews in the states are becoming increasingly polarized. Um, how do you think that behavioral science can be applied to the challenge of depolarization and bringing people together? Are there behavioral contagion concepts and elements that we could use to help facilitate this direction? Yeah, I think one of one of the the things I've been thinking about lately is the information environment. Cass Sunstein has a new book, Too Much Information. Uh, there's a chapter in it on Facebook. Uh, Facebook's business model uh, is is a, a I, I I would characterize it in in things I've I've written as clickbait on steroids. Uh, the, the news environment has gone from one dominated by local newspapers, uh, which were local monopolies. They had expensive capital equipment. They, they could 
sustain their their expenses quite easily with ad revenue from from ads. Once everything started going online, that business model collapsed. Uh, the the ads went from local newspapers to Facebook. Uh, Facebook makes more money the more people it has on its platform and the more closely they monitor you and the more time you spend on the platform. And so the entire design of their algorithms is shaped by their desire to cause you to spend a maximum number of hours each day on the platform. And, and the material that gets people to do that is not the material that is best for you. It's the material that is most addictive. Uh, the, there's a, a great book called Addiction by Design uh, about the design of slot mas- machines in Las Vegas and elsewhere. They're, they're, they hire teams of PhD psychologists to, to give them detailed advice about how to set the design parameters of the machine to make you want to keep pulling the lever all day long. Or what happens? It's a design feature. And I think uh, unless we take steps to discourage that business model's influence, we're going to have a very hard time uh, of curing the polarization problem. They they thrive on polarization. Having people uh, engage in conflict is the exact uh, uh, stimulus that keeps people glued to their screens, uh, clicking for a, another hit of dopamine uh, in, in, in the process. So how do you do that? Well, we, we see some success with the subscription model. So the New York Times, the Washington Post, other newspapers uh, lost ad revenue to Facebook, yes, but now they have been able to recapture their their readership by selling subscriptions. You can't read what they have unless you pay. Uh, that's even efficient. If you're a subscriber, you get unlimited free access to everything they have in their in their inventory. So uh, it doesn't cost anything extra to let let somebody read an extra article. Why should you charge people extra for reading it? Uh, if you're a Netflix subscriber, that's efficient too. If you're a subscriber because you have access to all the films. Uh, without paying extra if you watch more of them. Uh, and it doesn't cost Netflix extra to let you watch more of them. So that's a good thing. But that's a very limited response to this Facebook business model. We ought to be encouraging the subscription model. That that would mean income support for people, or maybe in the tax code, give people an allowance to, to buy more subscriptions to new sources uh, at the local level. So these ones that have succeeded have been mostly national in scope, uh, we, we have a, a, a shortfall of investigative journalism, the kind of uh, journalism that keeps politicians honest. Uh, there is a, a agency in the, in the government here, the National Endowment for the Arts. They encourage artistic endeavor with grants that we could in, encourage investigative journalism with grants. There, there are nonprofit organizations that do investigative journalism, we could fund those more generously. There's a lot we can do, but I think when you're focused on polarization, the the real key item to to zero in on is combating the business model that drives Facebook uh, and and its ilk. Uh, It's really important to get at the root cause of that polarization. Thanks, Robert. We are at the end of uh, this great conversation. Uh, 
but we are uh, curious with uh, John about your vision of the future of economics and behavioral economics, behavioral science. Where do you think? Uh, where do you see things uh, heading? I I think I'm uh, looking at this question the same way I looked at it in 1983 when I taught that first behavioral economics course. There, there are enormous inefficiencies in the, in the system. Uh, that's bad news at one level. Uh, we're, we're all suffering much more than we need to be suffering. But at another level, that's incredibly good news because what's true about an inefficient situation is that and this is a, a, a remark I make in virtually every class I've ever taught over the last decades. When the pie gets bigger, it's necessarily possible for everyone to have a larger slice than before. You can draw two diagrams of pies, cut them up any way you, you want, uh, keep the angles of the slices the same in the two diagrams. Everybody will have a bigger slice than he had before if you make the pie bigger. Nobody can argue against that. Doesn't happen automatically when you make the pie bigger. Sometimes you have to take steps to make sure that somebody who got most of the increase in the pie shares some of it with somebody who didn't, didn't get any. But we can do that. And when we see an inefficient situation, we can make everybody better off. What that means is we can enable everybody to pursue more fully his or her vision of whatever the good life entails. Why wouldn't you want to do that? So, so going forward, it's my hope that behavioral insights will help us focus on the steps we could take to make the system more Getting people to avoid cognitive errors is a step we've been taking in the nudge units for many years. We should continue taking those steps and expanding them, mediating solutions to the collective action problems uh, is something we've focused much less on, but the gains to be had there are even vastly larger than those other gains. And we can make enormous progress going forward if we'll just focus on those more intently than we have in the past. There's no sacrifice necessary to shift the pattern of investment away from increased private consumption that has no positive effect on anyone's health or happiness towards additional spending in domains where we know it would matter for us. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Robert. Um, is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with? Uh, and where can they find out more about you and your work? You know, I'm a, a unusual in the sense of being a geezer on Twitter. Most people on Twitter are a lot younger than I am, but uh, I joined uh, a year or two ago, a couple of years ago, and uh, have found it an unusually useful forum for encountering ideas that I've found to be of use in my own, own thinking. Uh, it, it all depends, of course, on whom you follow. Uh, if people are inclined to follow me, uh, my, my handle is at econnaturalist, at E-C-O-N-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-I-S-T. And what I've uh, taken to of late is that when I have something to write, I make use of Twitter's new feature, which is the thread feature, 
uh, I'll write a series of tweets trying to summarize the basic ideas and get feedback uh, on the ideas. Uh, I found it enormously useful both for putting the ideas down in concise form and for getting response uh, responses from other people about how to think more clearly about them, how to refine them, where I'm wrong, where, where I need to put more emphasis into be, being uh, more explicit uh, and so on. So, so that that's the forum where I'm uh, most likely to encounter uh, useful commentary, I think, these days. Excellent. Thank you so much. Okay, very good talking to you both. Eric, John? Thanks a lot, Robert. It was a fascinating, I think, conversation. I'm sure our listener will enjoy it alone and will learn a lot. So uh, thanks again for joining. Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.